You're listening to a sermon from River City Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. For more gospel-centered resources and to learn about our church, visit www.rivercitympls.com. If you guys want to grab last coffee and pastry, head on back. And as you do so, if you want to grab your Bible or grab one of those hardback black Bibles from the table, feel free to use one of those. If you don't own a Bible, that is our gift to you, so feel free to take that home. If you use one of those, you're on page 979, 979 in those. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 22 is where we are. So Ephesians 6, 10 through 22. We're nearing the end of our Ephesians series, which we've called The Foundations of Faith, From Death to Life in the book of Ephesians. And today we're going to lay the last foundation stone, if you will, before we wrap up our series next week. And today's passage is one of the better known passages in Ephesians. We're going to be talking about the armor of God. So if anyone grew up with like a flannel board of some kind, then at some point in time, you probably sat with someone who put a sword and a shield and shoes and a belt onto some felt little man. Sometimes when we become really familiar with a passage like this one, uh, we don't realize some of the things that we've missed. And so one of the things I'm hoping today is that together we will all see more clearly what God wants us to see. And in that, make sense of some of the spiritual realities that we experience around us every day. Sometimes in ways that we don't even understand how they impact our lives. So part of my hope for us today is just that we have eyes to see. And so would you stand with me as I read from God's word, Ephesians 6, 10 through 20. When I finish, like we do each week, I will say this is the word of the Lord, an acknowledgement of what we've read, and I'll just invite you as an expression of gratitude for God's gift to us in his word to just say thanks be to God. So Ephesians 6, 10 through 20 says this, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand firm... Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith which, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. This is the word of the Lord. Grab a seat. I'll pray for us. Father, we thank you for your word and for the gift it is to us as your people. We thank you for even the picture we have here of the armor that you give to us, these spiritual resources in this battle to withstand. 
the devices of the evil one. God, I pray that now you would help us to have eyes to see, that we would see the reality of the world as it is, as you've communicated in your word, and that you would help us by your spirit to behold the wondrous things that you have given us here in your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I was having a conversation with a friend the other day, and this friend has worked in the Middle East for over 40 years, working primarily in community development and education and caring for people that most others have long forgotten about. And he said to me that in his experience, people are always rushing toward a fight in the Middle East, and I would say that's true in America these days as well. He told me about a conversation that he he was having with somebody just recently, and he sensed that they were starting to run toward this other person being their enemy. And he stopped them, and he just said to them, so do we have two enemies now? He got a confused look in response, as you might expect, and he was asked what he meant. And so he went on to respond, well, it sounds like we have two enemies now. I knew that we were fighting Satan and his evil cohort, but it sounds like this other person you're talking about is also our enemy now. And he's done this in more than one conversation, and in many ways it's very disarming. He reframes our opposition, makes the other person take a step back and ask themselves who the true enemy is, reminding them that the true enemy is never the other person, but the principalities of darkness that exist in the world. Now, that is very resonant with what Paul is saying here in our passage. He says, our enemy is not flesh and blood, but the principalities of darkness. Now, this week, as I prepared to preach, I wondered to myself, if you knew that you are in a fight, if you knew that you were engaged in this battle, that you have an enemy, the message of the sermon I want for you to hear today is that we are in a battle against an unseen enemy, And God has given us every tool that we need to withstand the enemy's attack. What you might not always realize is that that this battle intersects with your life in all sorts of ways. So often the things that you hate doing, but sometimes find yourself doing, when you use words to hurt someone that you love, when you are apathetic or neglectful of your responsibilities, when the nightly habit of too many beers or too little sleep makes you wake up the next day and telling yourself that you're going to do it differently tomorrow. The anxiety you feel that distracts you from life, these realities that consume your mind, the spiritual battle that we are talking about today is intertwined with all these different parts of life. And if we are ignorant of our real enemy, then we will miss out on the resources that God has given us to withstand that enemy. So my goal today is to help you see who the true enemy is and to know that you have everything you need to stand strong in the battle. We're going to investigate this through three questions that will form our outline. The first question is, who are we fighting? The second, how do we fight? And third, why we can fight with confidence. So first, who are we fighting? Well, Paul clearly defines our enemy here, and it is never the person sitting across the table from you. Throughout Ephesians, Paul gives instructions about how to walk faithfully as followers of Jesus, and our relationships are central throughout his teaching. In this final section of his letter here, he makes it clear that the other person is never the true 
enemy. He says in verse 12, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. The answer to the question, who are we fighting? As I said, is never another person. It is the patterns that are propagated by the principalities of darkness. That is what we fight. This is the realm in which we do battle. Paul is trying to give us a right perspective here at the end of Ephesians. He wants us to understand how it is we walk faithfully as followers of Jesus, which he has outlined for us throughout the beginning part of the letter. There are a lot of opportunities for conflict with other people. Ethnic reasons, as Paul outlines in chapter 2, within the church and outside of the church, with co-workers, family, neighbors, or friends, all of which Paul has addressed throughout Ephesians. Acknowledging that our enemy is not flesh and blood, but the principalities of darkness, doesn't absolve other people of their responsibility in conflict. It's not a tactic that we use to not have to deal with our own behaviors, but it gets our eyes off of one another as the enemy. It reminds us that we live in a world that is not purely material material and physical, but that there's a spiritual reality around us. The rise of the Enlightenment in the 17th and 18th centuries has changed the way that we see the world in Western culture. There is an increasing emphasis, there has been an increasing emphasis on reason and science and empirical evidence. These have become more authoritative to us than they were before. They've always been helpful to learn how to grow crops or make medicine or respond to all sorts of things in the world, but they have come to define the meaning in life. And anything that could not be affirmed through empirical evidence so often is dismissed or doubted. This has impacted Christianity as well. Within Christianity, the rise of historical and biblical criticism has caused us to question so often miracles and supernatural events that are outlined in the Bible. By some, they are tolerated at best or rejected completely. As a culture, as a broad culture, we have emphasized the physical world, a more naturalistic worldview, and anything that is supernatural is seen with suspicion. And the result is that our mental map of the world is out of sync with the mental map that the Bible gives us. When Paul looked at the world around him, he wanted his readers to see that their true enemy is not physical, but spiritual, and that Jesus has conquered the domain of darkness through his death and his resurrection. Think about this strategy, even for a moment, that Satan has employed. If Satan wanted to attack and deceive you into spiritual weakness, wouldn't it be a worthwhile strategy to let you think that he just didn't exist at all? In one of C.S. Lewis's most creative and well-known books, he presents the Im- or this, these imaginary letters to Wormwood, a junior demon from a more senior mentor and uncle named Screwtape. And in one of the letters, Screwtape is telling Wormwood that if he cannot tempt his target with pleasures, the sort of fleshy and obvious sins that we often might think about, then to lull him to sleep from the spiritual realities around him would be just as good, maybe even better in the long run. And he writes that nothingness, that's the word he uses, nothingness or nothing and distraction is a very strong temptation. Ignorance of the reality of the spiritual realm, the eternality of our souls and the gravity of the fight that we are in. Nothingness is powerful. And here I'll pick up this quote. He says, nothing is strong enough 
to steal away a man's best years, not in sweet sins, but in dreary flickering of the mind. Over it knows not what and knows not why. In the gratification of curiosities so feeble that the man is only half aware of them, in drumming of fingers and kicking of heels, in whistling tunes that he does not like, or in the long, dim labyrinth of reveries that have not even lust or ambition to give him a relish, but which, once chance association has started them, the creature is too weak and fuddled to shake off. Our problem today is that we are distracted and we are or we are consumed with what might be called demonic frivolity. The principalities of darkness are content to lull us to sleep of the spiritual realities in the world. And once that has happened, it is much easier to lead us then into the sort of relational conflict and discord that Paul's been warning against that is contrary to life in God's kingdom. And here's what you need to hear from God today. Your enemy is not flesh and blood, It is the principalities of darkness that exist in the world. That is who our enemy is. So now we have to address the second question. Well, how do we fight then? If we've identified the enemy, how do we fight the enemy? Paul uses a combination of words in this passage several times with strong and stand. This is the first way that we fight. We we stand strong in the Lord and we stand against the principalities of darkness. Look with me at verse 10. Finally, Paul writes, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. One commentary that I read this week said of this verse, life in this often hostile world requires endurance and strength, but not the kind we give ourselves. Rather, to resist a sp- at a spiritual level requires the strength supplied by God rooted in his might. In Paul's mind, the strength that we need to live a life as a follower of Jesus is supplied by the God who saves us. Think back to Paul's prayer in chapter 1, where he prayed that his readers would know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. We fight the domain of darkness with the power of the one who conquered darkness. We stand firm by putting on what Paul calls the armor of God. We see this in verses 13 and 14, where he writes, Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand firm, stand therefore... And then Paul goes on to explain this armor of God. He uses imagery of a Roman soldier to explain the different aspects of the protection that God has given us. And the picture here is of an army that has already won. And together, we are standing our ground against the enemy. In Christ, we have already won. And so we stand ground through the armor of God. In our passage, Paul is less concerned with which piece of armor is connected with which spiritual virtue that could be a helpful study. I don't think that's his primary concern. His primary concern is that we see these spiritual resources that God has given us in the battle. And here's what he lists for us. Truth as a belt in verse 4. Righteousness as a breastplate in verse 14. The gospel of peace as shoes for our feet, verse 15. Faith as a shield, verse 16. Salvation as a helmet in verse 17 and the word of God as a sword, also verse 17. And then all of this is wrapped up in the discipline of prayer 
as he appeals to prayer in verses 18 and 20. And here's what I want you to see today. The spiritual resources that God gives us are a very natural means of grace in our lives. Sometimes we get the idea that to fight the domain of darkness, we need to do that primarily through things that we think of as supernatural resources, so often portrayed in films as exorcisms and incantations and holy water. But the resources at our disposal that God has given us are far more common and far more natural to us than we think. Faith, God's word, prayer, the message of the gospel, these are the attributes, the armor, the weapons that God has given us to do battle with darkness. The way that we understand how this material and physical world interact with the supernatural and metaphysical world is really important to us if we're going to understand what Paul's writing. The mental map that we have as a result of the enlightenment is very dualistic, as though these two worlds rarely interact. Our mental map is more like two parallel tracks running alongside one another, moving forward at about the same pace, but never interacting with one another or rarely interacting with each other. And the only way that it happens then is when something from the supernatural realm jumps the tracks, so to speak, and reaches out to influence or impact the material world. And so we see the parting of the Red Sea as God reaching into the material world, or the incarnation of Christ as God entering the material world, or the temptation we might experience from Satan in darkness as an attempt to influence this world. In this conception of reality, God has put things into motion And he will occasionally reach into our world to impact things. But for the most part, the natural world just follows its course. But that is not the picture that the Bible gives us. In in the biblical picture, the material and immaterial world are far more enmeshed. The natural world and supernatural world are not running along parallel tracks, but they are one reality, thinly divided from one another. And what we call supernatural things... When we see them, it is the veil thinning between what is observable and material with things that are often invisible or metaphysical. What this also means is that God is at work through regular and natural means as much as he is supernatural and irregular means. If you look throughout the biblical narratives, more often than not, God's spirit is at work through his people, through the creativity the initiative and the actions of his people, which are at times deeply flawed, and also through God's common grace, more beautiful and beneficial to humanity than we even know sometimes. What we call the natural and supernatural are far more integrated than we know. And God uses spiritual resources of word, prayer, faith, truth, the gospel of peace, that we might think of as common and natural to do something uncommon and supernatural in the world, to help us fight the domain of darkness, extinguish the flaming arrows of the devil, and pursue peace with our enemies. What I want you to see from this text is that the supernatural world is far more natural than you realize, and the natural world far more supernatural. And doesn't this concept of reality help make sense of how Jesus commands us to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us? Doesn't it make sense of how Jesus could hang on the cross and pray, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do? Because the person in front of us is never our true enemy. They are made in God's image. And reconciliation is actually the object of our work in the world. 
Forgiveness and reconciliation is only possible because Jesus did battle with darkness, and through his blood on the cross, he has brought together things that were formerly torn apart. He has broken down the dividing walls of hostility that, has, that have kept us separate. God has given you access to an abundance of spiritual resources. They are ready and available for you. And you don't need some radical experience in order to access them. You don't have to go on some mountaintop wilderness journey, pinnacle ascending prayer retreat to have spiritual power. Here's what I want to encourage you to do for this next month. I'm going to give you some things to try. You can try all of them. You can try some of them, but try just for this month. Do a few of these things. Find a verse in the Bible that preaches the gospel of peace and then say it to yourself every day. Guard your schedule enough so that you can spend time with those that you love, your family, your neighbors, your friends. Go to bed early enough so that you can wake up with energy. And with that energy, read your Bible more days than not. Get on your knees and pray for strength from the Lord. And if you do that this month, not out of legalism, let me be clear, this isn't legalism. This isn't about following rules, but about accessing a resource that God has given you. This is a resource God has given us to live the life he desires for us. And if you do that this month, I promise you, your life will be different. This is real spiritual power God has given us. This is how we do battle. Now, let's address the third question. Why can we fight with confidence? Why can we have confidence in this? Something we have not talked about much throughout the Ephesians series is the way that Paul sees Jesus' death and resurrection as a victory over the principalities of darkness. The cross and the resurrection accomplished many things. One of them is victory over principalities of darkness. Now, I've not highlighted that much throughout the series, in part because I knew we were going to have an entire sermon about this here at the end of chapter 6. But now would be a good time for us to go back through the book of Ephesians and help you see what Paul is emphasizing in the victory of Christ, that it is Christ's victory over darkness that gives us confidence for the fight because we are now in Christ. Jesus has adopted us on his side of the battle. And Paul sees this call to follow Jesus in all of life as a spiritual battle against evil. We'll see that throughout Ephesians. So it begins right away in verse three of chapter one, where we read that the blessing we have received in Christ is something we've received in the heavenly realm. Now, heavenly realm is biblical language for what we might call supernatural realm, but with so much more depth and so much more nuance. Where we use words like natural and supernatural or physical and metaphysical, the the Bible often uses earth and heaven. And so we have blessing right now, it says in verse three, in the heavenly realm, in the spiritual realm, we have blessing in Christ. And in verse 10, we read that God's mission was to unite all things in heaven and on earth. Things that were previously broken apart, Jesus came to reconcile them. And perhaps the most clear uh, explanation of Christ's victory over darkness or most clear discussion of, from Paul within Ephesians is here at the end of chapter 1 in this prayer that he prays for the Ephesians. He's asking that God would give his, his readers insight to give them perspective to see the immeasurable greatness of God's power toward us who believe. The same power that he worked in Christ to raise him from the dead and seat him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and power and authority and dominion, to put all things under his feet. That power 
has been given to us. We have confidence in the fight because our captain, he has already won the battle. In chapter 2, then, Paul explains the result of the new life that we have in the language of changing kingdoms, if you will. We were citizens of the domain of darkness, dead in our trespasses, following the prince of the power of the air. But God, being rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, and he raised us up with Christ, and it says that he has seated us with him in the heavenly realm right now. If you are in Christ, you are alive and you are seated with Christ in the heavenly realm. We changed citizenship and it did not require an extensive immigration process. It was an act of God's immense grace through faith in Christ. And through Christ, then we are made into a new community. It tells us the walls that previously divided us are broken down. And then in chapter 3, verse 10 Paul says that we as a church, and this is the the verse that Maggie referenced earlier, as a church, we bear witness to the victory of Christ, not just to other people, but to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly realm. I don't know if we always realize that when we come together for church, when we gather with one another, when we live as the church in the world, we are bearing witness to the victory of Christ. We are proclaiming to all the principalities of darkness, Jesus has won and he has rescued us. It's powerful. When we gather, we're doing spiritual war. I thought about that before this week as I was preparing and praying for what would happen right here, right now. That together we would proclaim victory. What a gift it is for us to be able to gather together and do that. In chapter four, we read that Jesus ascended above all the heavens in victory Like a king who would then give gifts to his followers after battle, Jesus gives gifts to his followers so that we can grow in maturity, resist the devil, live as agents of light, and reject the darkness. If you look back through Ephesians, through the vantage point of the spiritual battle in which we are now enlisted, you will notice how Paul sees our lives in this physical world as part of the spiritual world over which Jesus is Lord. If we miss this subtle theme throughout the letter, then the armor of God here at the end of Ephesians might feel like it came out of nowhere. But in reality, it is the logical end of all that Paul has written up to this point. Our new identity is that we have been rescued by Jesus. We are now part of his kingdom, no longer citizens of the domain of darkness. We are children of light. And as people with a new identity, the second half of Ephesians is all about how we resist darkness and live as followers of Jesus in our everyday lives. If that is going to be possible, we need to know about the spiritual resources that God has given us. Truth, righteousness, the gospel of peace, the word of God, prayer. And Paul's use of armor language here in Ephesians is not the first time that we see this type of language in the Bible. But in the Old Testament, it is not us who wear the armor, it is God who wears the armor. In Isaiah 59, God is the divine warrior who saw that evil was rampant in the world, and as he looked around, there was no one to intercede. No one to defend those who could not defend themselves. And so, beginning in Isaiah 59, verses 16 and 17, God does something about it. And we read that God's own arm brought him salvation, and his righteousness upheld him. And then we get the armor language in verse 17. God put on righteousness as a breastplate 
and a helmet of salvation on his head. In Isaiah, God is the one who wears the armor, and he fights for us when we cannot. Now, fast forward, Jesus comes as a divine warrior who overcame his enemy through his own death. Jesus came and fought the battle with evil that we could not win. He died the death that we deserve, and he rose in victory. In many ways, God stripped off his armor at the cross. Jesus set aside his breastplate of righteousness, and he wore the nakedness of our shame. Jesus took off the helmet of salvation, and he wore a crown of thorns. Jesus was exposed on the battlefield, and he received the flaming arrows of our enemy. But what our enemy did not know is that Jesus would be vindicated, and in his resurrection, he would be seated far above all power and rule and authority and dominion. Through faith in him, we are united to him, seated with him in the heavenly places. And now we have the armor of God to hold fast against our enemy, the breastplate of righteousness, the helmet of salvation, the shield of faith. They are now ours to wear in Christ. In verse 16, Paul writes, in all circumstances, take up the shield. And here's why I mentioned this little phrase, in all circumstances, at the end of the sermon, because Paul is writing this letter from prison. He asks for prayer in verses 18 through 20. And when he asks for prayer, he doesn't ask to be set free. He doesn't ask to be vindicated against his enemies. He asks for boldness to speak the gospel to his guards, to those who are around him. It's like he's wearing those shoes that he was talking about, the, that, that guard his feet with the gospel of peace. He's running toward those around him, not as enemies, but as people he wants to proclaim boldly about the victory of Jesus. He asks for prayer for that. It's easy sometimes to start to think our circumstances are the enemy. And if only our circumstances would change, then I'd be able to fight. Then I could live a life of faith. And I'm not discounting the real challenge of our circumstances sometimes. But from prison here, Paul is saying, regardless of circumstances, put on the armor of God, resist the devil, live as agents of light in the world. I could not possibly list all of the circumstances that we experience or mention all the things that plague you, but here's what I know, even from this past week. I have spoken with people who have had to navigate relational conflict. I've spoken with another who is frustrated with themselves for drinking too much alcohol at night far too often. Another who is being confronted with their own pride. As I said, I could not possibly mention every circumstance or situation. And I know that some of you carry some deep shame for what you're going through even right now. Others of you perhaps are ignorant of the spiritual battle that rages around you. But what I want you to know today is that we are in a battle and the enemy is not flesh and blood. The change you need is not primarily your circumstances. I've been reminded this week that we, what we're doing right now is part of the battle. When I stand up to preach, when you listen, when we sing together, when we pray together, as I prayed even for you in anticipation of today, all of this, we're doing battle with darkness. And my prayer before today is that your eyes would be opened for the veil between the earthly and the heavenly realm to be thinned for us a bit so that we can see more clearly. So be encouraged, whatever your circumstance, whatever it is that may lead to shame or even ignorance of the darkness, be encouraged. Even though we have an enemy, 
God has given us every spiritual resource we need to withstand his attacks and to live as followers of Jesus in the everyday stuff of life. Thank you for listening to this sermon from River City Church. If you found this resource helpful, we encourage you to share it with your friends and family. We exist to see weary lives renewed through relationship with Jesus in the Twin Cities and beyond.